Well, we're going to read the Bible together just now. We're going to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and we're going to read very well-known verses from Luke's chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Later on, Peter is going to be preaching from this passage. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. If you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1027, 1027. Page 1027, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's Word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, then please do open it to that passage that Nigel read earlier for us in Luke chapter 2. It'll be really helpful, actually, if you can follow along this morning. We're going to be looking pretty closely at this passage together. Christmas is full of strange traditions, isn't it? Whether it's the bringing inside of an evergreen tree and decorating it with bubbles and tinsel and lights or the hanging up of stockings on the mantelpiece, or the pulling of Christmas crackers at the dinner table, or the obsession with serving mince pies with tea and coffee at this time of year. Christmas is full of all sorts of traditions, 
Perhaps you and your family have some traditions that you enjoy each year or that you remember uh, from the past when you were growing up. Traditions can be very powerful things. They connect us with the past and with one another. We grow to associate certain people and certain times of year with certain traditions. And actually, we miss those traditions when they don't happen, or indeed, we miss certain people when they can no longer be part of those traditions. At a deeper level, traditions can also reassure us. They reassure us that some things don't change, at least not too much. We live in a world, don't we, where there is so much changing so fast whether it's politically or culturally or socially, things seem to be more dramatic, more alarming year upon year. And in the midst of a turbulent world, traditions reassure us that at least on some level there is stability in the world. But traditions can also present us with problems. Some traditions can be hard to get out of. Some traditions become so fixed that they actually constrain us rather than comfort us. So take Christmas pudding, for example. I mean, who ever decided that the most important and biggest feast of the year should conclude with something that's full of dried fruit and glazed cherries and no chocolate or caramel in sight? I want to suggest this morning that for many of us, our understanding of the birth of Jesus Christ has perhaps been shaped more by the traditions of the culture than by the biblical story itself. And perhaps those traditions might constrain us more than they comfort us. Perhaps they skew the Christmas story for us. And then we miss something of the awe and wonder that Luke wants us to understand. So this morning, I want us to to think about the biblical account of the birth of Jesus Christ, specifically the account that Luke records for us here in Luke chapter 2. And as we do that, I want us to allow the scripture, the story of the gospel, to speak to us more loudly than our traditions. So there's three things that I want us to to notice from the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2 this morning. Firstly, that he was born in history. Secondly, that he was born in a home. And then thirdly, that he was born for us. So those are the three things that we're going to see in Luke chapter 2 this morning. First of all then, that Jesus was born in history. Luke starts off this account by telling us that it all takes place during the reign of Caesar Augustus. It is the actions of a Roman emperor that are the catalyst for the birth narrative that follows. And so Luke is grounding these events in real history so that his readers can have a real and verifiable picture of when they happened. So who was Caesar Augustus and what do we know about him? Well, we know from history that he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Before taking on the title Caesar Augustus, he was better known as Octavian, He became the sole ruler of Rome after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all of his rivals. The last of his enemies to be destroyed, incidentally, was a certain Mark Antony. Interestingly, he was the first Roman leader to turn Rome into a republic 
ruled, or to turn Rome from a republic ruled by the people to being an empire where he himself was the sole and exclusive ruler. And when he became emperor, he declared his deceased adoptive father to be divine, a god. And so naturally then, he styled and declared himself to be the son of God. And more than that, the Roman poets lauded him as the savior of the world. And the rise of the great Roman empire stems back to the rule of Caesar Augustus. So here is Luke telling us about the birth of Jesus Christ, and he begins with mentioning this Caesar Augustus. And if you were one of the first readers of the gospel account, as soon as you saw that name, Caesar Augustus, some of those names and titles that we've just mentioned would have been running through your head. Son of God, Savior of the world, a great king, and a great lord. And then look further down in the passage, goes on to record what the angel says to the shepherds when announcing the birth of Jesus. How does he describe Jesus? What titles does he give to this baby boy? Look at verse 11. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So Luke is telling us that there is one who is the savior of the world. There is one who is the Lord and King. There is one who is the son of God. But he wants his readers and us to see that it's not who we might think. It's not Caesar Augustus. Rather, it's this little baby boy born into history, born into humble circumstances, born to inaugurate an altogether different kingdom than the Roman Empire, a kingdom that would rival and eventually eclipse even the might of Rome, a kingdom that would last forever. We don't know for sure, but it seems that Caesar Augustus probably never heard of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. By the time of Jesus' ministry and then death and resurrection, it was Augustus' stepson, Tiberius, who had succeeded him as emperor. But Luke wants us to see that the birth of this baby boy is played out on the stage of history, and his birth marks the confrontation between the kingdom of God and all the kingdoms of this world. His birth will alter the course of human history in a much greater and more significant way than Caesar Augustus ever did. So all of this is teaching us something very important about how God works out his sovereign purposes in our world. Here is the great Caesar Augustus at the start of Luke chapter two. He is issuing a decree with the aim of tightening his grip on the Roman Empire. And yet, ironically, what is he doing? He is actually setting in course a series of events that will actually lead to the fall of the Roman Empire. What happened at first to be a great show of Caesar's power was actually proving to us the supremacy of God's sovereignty. Even Caesar's great decree here was part of God's divine plan. God rules all things for his own glory. He is sovereign over everything. That includes even the political events of the world. 
And we've just prayed about it, haven't we? In our current political climate, we do well to remember that, that even when things look chaotic and fragile, God rules all things for his own glory. And so we must trust that he is working out his sovereign purposes, even when we don't understand exactly what's going on. So Luke is is grounding all of this in history. He wants us to see the explosive truth here that the true son of God, the true savior of the world, the true king of the world is not sitting in the splendor and magnificence of Rome. Rather, he is born in a manger in Bethlehem. And those titles might have been falsely assumed by Augustus, but they do not belong to him. They belong to the baby boy in the humble surroundings of Bethlehem. And that leads us on to our second point then, that Jesus was born in a home. That's where we need to allow the text to speak for itself and to allow it to challenge our cultural, traditional understanding of the story. Most of us imagine the birth of Jesus taking place in a scene a bit like what we see on the screen there. But is that actually how Luke describes it for us? Well, we've got to read it for ourselves, don't we? You'll see, first of all, in verse four, that Luke tells us the route that Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph embark upon. They go up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's an important geographical detail that Luke records for us. Although if you look at an aerial view of the map, you'll see it on the screen. Bethlehem is about 80-odd miles south of Nazareth. It is significantly higher above sea level than Nazareth. And so Luke is correct when he says that they go up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. One of the things that actually makes the gospel accounts that we have so reliable and so trustworthy, particularly over and above some of the apocryphal gospel accounts that we have, is their accuracy when it comes to details of geography in first century Palestine. So when it comes to details like place names and journey times and locations of bodies of water and things like the layout of the land that we see here, the gospel writers consistently get those details correct. And so this is one such example. Luke clearly knew that the road from Nazareth to Bethlehem went up And it suggests that he's relying here on credible eyewitness accounts of these things and those details give us confidence in the trustworthiness of the Gospels. So they go up to Bethlehem. Luke adds that little note at the end of verse four that Bethlehem was known locally as the town of David. He also tells us that Joseph is from the house and line of David. And so when this census is issued, Joseph is returning to his ancestral home in order to register. Why is that important? Well, we need to understand that Joseph is not arriving in Bethlehem as a stranger looking for somewhere to stay. He is returning to the village of his origin. He would have known people there. He would have been known by other people there. Not only that, he is from the royal family line. He is a descendant of David, Israel's greatest king. So here is a descendant of David returning to the town of David. He would have been welcomed with open arms almost anywhere he went. He would merely have had to recite his lineage. I am Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi. 
And that announcement alone would have been enough to have had him welcomed into almost any house in the town. On top of that, these people, first century Jews, were some of the most hospitable people on the planet. They were incredibly welcoming and hospitable. Even today, that is one of the most incredibly welcoming and hospitable cultures anywhere you'll travel. And so the idea that they would have been coldly snubbed here or rejected and sent out to a stable alone seems to be a social and cultural impossibility. So if we're being faithful to the text and seeking to understand it in its original Middle Eastern context, then any idea of Mary and Joseph being turned away from a sort of commercial B&B by an innkeeper and sent out the back to a stable, rejected, cold, and alone, it's almost certainly not the case. In fact, the eagle-eyed among you will have noticed that actually there is absolutely no mention in the passage whatsoever of a stable, nor is there any mention of an innkeeper. I did this in the junior high school this week on Wednesday. They were the guinea pigs for this, and when I said that, there was a 13-year-old girl who audibly gasped and said, the church has been lying to me this whole time. That wasn't quite the result that I was hoping for. It got worse after that. She then said, I'm going to go home and tell my mom that this is true. And I said, that's okay. Tell them that a guy from Hill Street Presbyterian Church was here doing it. Tell them that his name was John Graham. And you can (laughs) send your complaints to him. So no innkeeper, no stable, but there is a mention of an inn. Look at the end of verse 7. Most of our English translations, it says, she wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Our traditional reading of the Christmas story at this point pictures Mary and Joseph being rejected by the people of Bethlehem, but we've just said that that doesn't really make sense. So the question we have to answer is, why does Luke mention an inn? What are we to understand by that term? We've got to do a little bit of work here, particularly a little bit of work with the original text, because the Greek word that Luke uses here is actually the word Cataluma. It's a word that can be translated as in, but actually it is more commonly translated as guest room or upper room. And in his gospel, Luke uses this exact same Greek word on only one other occasion. It's in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus is looking for a place to have the Passover feast with his disciples. He says, Where is the Cataluma, guest room? It's translated in English where I may eat eat the Passover with my disciples. So on that one other occasion, the word is actually translated as guest room. I think that's a better translation for what we have in Luke chapter two and verse seven. It seems to make altogether more sense of the story. So Mary and Joseph arrive at a house, perhaps the home of relatives of Joseph, perhaps even his own parents' home, There's no room for them in the guest room. Why is there no room for them in the guest room? Well, it may well have been that the house is already packed. Extended family have traveled from far and wide to register for the census. The place is completely rammed, full to overflowing. And on top of that, the guest room probably wasn't big enough for Mary to give birth in. And so the family seem to have made an executive decision that Mary will stay and labor and give birth in the main living area in the center of the house. 
All of this begins to make sense when you see the floor plans of a first century Palestinian home. There would have been one main room that the family lived in and slept in and cooked in. Then there was another guest room, the Cataluma that we've mentioned, where visitors would have stayed. And then there's also this stable or courtyard area at the front of the house, inside the house. In that time and culture, the animals would have come inside each night and slept in the house. We can't quite fathom that. Some of you don't like your dog coming into the living room. But here, the donkey and the cow and the sheep, they come inside. And in those days, they did that in order to keep the animals safe from theft, but also because the animals provided a vital source of heat on cold winter nights. There's no central heating, no wood-burning stove, no aga. So you put up with the smell of the cow and the donkey and the sheep in order to stay warm. And of course, having the animals in the house at night inevitably meant that there would have to be a feeding trough or a manger for them in the house. So that's what we see in the picture. There were likely a couple of mangers in the main living area of the house that were accessible for the animals to eat from. And in that moment when Jesus is born, likely in a room full of women with all the men standing outside the house, it seems that one of the mangers is cleaned, fresh straw laid in it, the baby wrapped in cloths and then placed into the manger. And that way he would have been kept safe from all of the hustle and bustle of people and animals that were running about in this confined little house. So although it messes with our traditions, it seems likely that the birth of Jesus actually took place in an ordinary house of some kind. A humble house, yes. Perhaps a peasant's house. But in a home Surrounded by family and visiting relations, and yes, even their animals. So why does all of this actually matter? Well, in the first instance, I think it helps us to remember that we need to let the text speak for itself. When it comes to the Christmas story, or any part of the biblical story for that matter, we need to have our understanding of what actually happens shaped more by the text than by our traditions. One of the things that we say sometimes here in Hill Street is that we can't do better than the Bible. That's surely true when it comes to the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus. We cannot do better than the original accounts, accounts that we have. And so perhaps you could start a new Christmas tradition this year that helps you and your family Refamiliarize yourself with the biblical story? Why not either on your own or as a couple or if you have family within with your kids and grandkids? Take some time, perhaps this afternoon or perhaps on Christmas Eve, to read Luke chapter two together. Read it aloud. Ask some questions about what happened. Take some time to thank God for sending his son Jesus to be our rescuer. And as you do that, allow the text itself to recapture the wonder of the significance of what is actually going on here. And then perhaps one of the wider implications of this understanding of the story is that I think it opens up a whole new perspective on what it means that Jesus came as one of us. He is not hidden away in the cold and lowly stable nor is he even in the carefully prepared guest room. Rather, he has come into the world 
in the middle of the main living space with all of its chaos and noise. And of course, that is the miracle of the incarnation, isn't it? In that in his humanity, Jesus does enter into the chaos and noise of our everyday lives. He knows what it's like to be one of us. We sing it in the carol, don't we? He feels for our sadness. He shares in our gladness. And so for Luke, Jesus isn't born over there somewhere, away from everyday life, inviting us to visit him once a year or even once a week. No, he is born right at the heart of the home, demanding the attention of everyone in the house, constantly demanding the attention of everyone in the house, demanding our attention even today. That leads us then to think finally about Jesus being born for us. This is the point that Luke really wants to impress upon us, and we get a sense of that in verse 11 with the announcement of the angels. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. You see, the wonder of the incarnation is not just that this child has been born to us, but it's that this child has been born for us. In Jesus, the God of the universe has entered into our situation, taking on all the limitations of our physical existence. The incarnation means that God doesn't save us from a distance. He has come close to us. He has become one of us in order that he might suffer with us and suffer for us and ultimately redeem us for himself. You see, that's what had to happen in order for salvation to be accomplished. It was by becoming one of us that the Son of God could offer himself as a sacrifice for us. Of course, we're saved by his perfect life and his substitutionary death. But if there is no incarnation, then there is no crucifixion and no resurrection of the Son of God. He was born for us. Pastorally speaking, this is really important, I think. It led Martin Luther to write these words in one of his lectures on the book of Galatians. He said, whenever you're concerned to think and act upon your salvation, so whenever you're thinking about your Christian life and how to live it, you must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb, embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms, and look at him, born being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens and having authority over all things. That's what we need, isn't it? More than our traditions, more than any gifts that we might receive this Christmas, more even than a break that we might need with family this Christmas, we need this Jesus. We need him in our lives. We need him in our families. We need him here in our church. We need him in our community. We're going to be talking about that later on this evening. And we need him in our nation. And as we see him in the manger, we must run to him and embrace him. Look upon him with the eyes of faith and be reminded all over again that this child who was born for us 
is the king of the whole world. Finally then, the invitation of the gospel is not just that Jesus has been born to us and for us, but also that he can be born in us. We sing about that in the carol too, don't we? O holy child of Bethlehem, descend, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. You know, in some sense, the real wonder of Christmas isn't just that the Son of God took on form, a human form, and was born among us in Bethlehem. The wonder of Christmas is that this Jesus can be born in us today, that he can cast out our sin, that he can bring his peace and forgiveness and healing into our lives and transform them forever. That's the good news that lies right at the heart of Christmas. It's the good news that Luke wants us to know and treasure for ourselves. It's the good news that we ought to celebrate together this Christmas and every Christmas. So let's pray that with his help, we'll be able to do that today with fresh joy and enthusiasm. Let us pray.